Every great dream begins with dreamers. Tom and Steve are strangers in a strange land. Join them on the journey from ignorance to knowledge, one book at a time, one chapter at a time. All aboard the Blunderground Railroad. Hey, thanks for joining us today. My name is Tom, and I'm with my wingman, Steve. How you doing? Hey, we are here on the Blunderground Railroad. We are going from ignorance to knowledge. And we've gained a lot of knowledge in our current book, which is The Christian Mind by Harry Myers. And uh, today, we're actually going to come to the end of a journey here. We're going to uh, come right into the station, and we're going to depart. Uh, and so uh, it's uh, been a very interesting journey. We started off talking about the Christian mind, uh, specifically the lack of it, and how uh, we don't have a Christian mind, uh, at least. And this was back in 1961 when the book was written. And we've worked through uh, what a person needs to cultivate in order to have a Christian mind. And we've had a lot of discussions as to why it's important to have a Christian mind in our current culture uh, where we can represent Christ uh, not only through uh, the words of Scripture and with the gospel, but also with a solid Christian mind that works on Christian presuppositions. So uh, our next uh, chapter here, uh, if you're following along with us, uh, hopefully you've just got done reading, uh, chapter number six, uh, Christianity's Sacramental Cast. Uh, all right, so we have the uh, sacrament. So sacrament, you know what I'm meaning in that term, Steve? I have no idea. It sounds Catholic to me. Well, sacraments. <laughs> so yeah, the, you think of the Catholic, uh, the Catholic sacraments. So sacraments are things that you would do, uh, things that um, things that you would do to express uh, what you believe. Uh, for example, uh, Christians pray, right? Yeah. So prayer would be a sacrament uh, of the uh, of the Christian experience. Uh, and he says here, the Christian mind thinks sacramentally. Uh, the Christian faith presents a sacramental view of life. Uh, it shows life's positive richness as derivative from the supernatural. So he says a sacramental view of life. Uh, and so uh, that there are things that we do in life. Uh, he goes on to talk about um, beauty, to experience beauty, or to or to recognize truth. That these are things that are connected to the divine, right? Yeah. yeah. And it reminds me, kind of reminds me of a, a quote I read recently. Uh, I don't think the person that said it was the original person. I think it's been around a while. Uh, but and I, it really struck me was the person said an individual can be an atheist, uh, and that's entirely possible. But it's not possible for an entire country to be atheist. You can't have... You know, an individual can say, I don't believe in God, but an entire, an entire culture or an entire people can't be dominated by this belief. It just well, doesn't work. Why? Because it's not likely? Because well, of that many people? Yeah, but it's also... It has things to do with the concept of beauty and the uh, uh, kind of the... Uh, the overcoming of the of an individual experience. So, uh, and we we're, we kind of experience this in modern day America uh, quite a bit. Uh, we still have, um, you know, we don't have necessarily things that bind us together. So uh, we have uh, we kind of have the cult of the individual. So everyone wants to have an individual experience or an individual lifestyle. 
Uh, so we're not at the point where people like to kind of LARP and pretend that we're at the point where, oh, well, um, you know, this particular political group, you know, doesn't want to have people be housewives. And they're never going to stop until being a housewife is illegal, right? Like, so it's kind of out of this dystopian science fiction novel. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, a lot of what we see in terms of cultural degradation is simply is done through simple identity, Right. People say, well, if you want to stay home and you want to be a housewife, then you can be. That's your identity. But just like I recognize your identity, you must recognize my identity. Yeah, whatever so, happened to minding your own business? Right, yeah. So kind of what, what happens is you end up with not one country, but you end up with 300 million countries where, you know, every <laughs> every individual gets to have their own say and everyone else kind of has to, you know, you don't, you don't really have a lot. You know, people say... Um, for example, uh, when you say, well, you know, we don't have a definition of kindness anymore. And people will say, oh, yeah, we do. That's ridiculous. For you to say that we can't, we don't have a definition of what kind is, well, that's, uh, that's crazy. Well, that person may have a point. But I think the larger picture is that if you go back 20 or 30 years, we have certain terms and certain virtues which are hard and fast. And now they're muddled. So I have no confidence that in another 20 or 30 years that a word like kind or a word like beauty or a word like truth or a word like love is going to also, you know, just become so willy-nilly that it's going to be meaningless. We don't have objective truth at all anymore. Yeah, right, right. Pretty so, much. It's, it's actually hard to think of something that's objectively true yeah. that everyone will agree on. Yeah, no, it everyone's is. offended by everything. The most absurd people. When people started getting offended by statues, yeah, I was shocked. Mm -hmm. That's old hat now. Yeah, it's way worse. You know, you no longer is it normal to just look down and figure out what gender you are. Like, yeah, we are so far beyond normal and objective truth. I, it's, it's gone. Yeah. So good luck finding the definition of any word. Right. You know. Yeah. No. It's it's really true. It really is. It really is true. Uh, as far as things come apart, you can't, uh, you know, my, my son Wyatt says this uh, quite a bit, you know, and a lot of it's language. When you can't, you can't use the same words with the same meaning, then that's balkanization. I mean, that's, that's effectively you're splitting yourself from your, and it's tribal. People will do this, and people have done this, and they continue to do this, right, is people split themselves into tribes based on linguistical understanding. So if I can speak with you, and you can either do one of two things. You can either you can either nod your head and agree with me, because you because uh, because you you agree with everything I'm saying, or you can disagree with me using the same terms, the same definition of terms that I'm using. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You use the word tribes, and you, you describe it being you know used that way where uh, they oppose one another. Yeah. Because when the Bible says nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, yeah. the word nations there that's how that's used. And if you go back in the Greek, it's tribes. Tribes. It's talking about different ethnicities. Yeah. People. Right. Yeah. Sure. Otherwise, nations and kingdoms would be the same thing. It would just be repeating itself. But Good call, yeah. yeah it's, in, it's in Matthew 24. And while I'm on the church, it was right after uh, the beginning where you started. Yeah. The book talks about um, Christianity being widely misrepresented as life, uh, misrepresented as uh, life rejecting rather than uh, life-affirming. He does talk and, about that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, well, we get a bad rap because people like, remember the Westboro Baptist Church? Uh, Yeah, I don't yeah, know much about uh, it, but yeah, I think know, so. I've read some things about whatever. it. Whatever, they, they protested dead soldiers' funerals, and 
you know, God hates fags and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, you said this before where there was a time when Christianity was just like, it was just a lifestyle choice, like whatever. It was down the middle as neutral people yeah. kind of left you alone. Well, you really have like the positive, the neutral, and the negative world. So the positive world is when being a Christian was generally a good thing. This is the era of cultural Christianity, right, yeah. where your neighbor would bring you cookies and with Bible verses on them, and they would be <laughs> making every effort to appear to be a Christian, but yet you knew at the end of the day that they didn't really believe in Jesus. They didn't have this personal prayer relationship with him, right? They didn't, they didn't, they weren't in their Bible and in that meaningful way. Uh, and then, uh, so, you know, which, um, now that cultural Christianity is beyond dead, I kind of miss it. Actually, it was kind of nice to have people around that would, uh, that would, you, you kind of have the same social script with a neutral, um, neutral, uh, and also too, that is also too, where, uh, when you hear a lot sometimes about, um, evangelizing and about, uh, you know, going and knocking on doors, yep. you know, this is still a lot of times spoken about in the context of a cultural Christianity mm-hmm. where, you know, people, you know, people may have a Bible verse on the front door, but then you say, Hey, do you really know what that means? Right. Well, people don't really have that too much anymore. Right. And then you have the, neut- <laughs> the neutral world in the neutral world. It's neither a positive nor a negative that you're a Christian. You just say, I'm a Christian. And people say, well, good for you. I'm, I'm happy for you, but I don't, I'm not interested, and everything's just on a copacetic level. Yeah. And people say, well, "I'll make sure I don't cuss, and I don't, uh, you know, I don't gargle, yeah. chicken, I don't gargle chicken blood and bark at The stereotypical right. things that I think Christians don't like, I just won't do around you. Right, right, pretty much, yeah, right. yeah, you know that sort of thing. But now we live in like an openly, it's a, it's a negative world, right? So we live in a negative world where, um, for example. Um, you know, like in public school, like in public schools, you can read, uh, they, they read books about uh, queer kids that don't want to come out to their evangelical parents because, you know, they're really evil, racist, bigoted people. Yeah. And this is what we have in public schools. So Christians actually use tax dollars to pay for this stuff. And so now if you're a Christian, you have to swim upriver. So now you have to defend yourself before you can actually even begin to speak about. And the Super Bowl ads, by the way, did not help us. If yeah. any anyone that's actually paying attention to what's going on in the world and looks at something as at more than just a surface level, that did not help us. First of all, it was a lukewarm message. Yeah, right. Okay, the mm-hmm. the nonprofit is called He Gets Us. Yeah, right. Well, that that what's that promote right there? Like, doesn't matter who you are, you know. Jesus right. loves you anyway. You can be whatever you want to be. Of course, that's that's the implied message here. Yep. Okay. Now there's a lot of offering plates out there, but I'm not even sure Joel Osteen is buying two Super Bowl commercials and then bumper stickers, T-shirts, and hats for free and shipped to you for free. All you had to do was log on and, and order them. Yeah. No one's doing that. What that did, it made sure that everyone knows about evangelical Christians. Right in the right. in the middle of all this was Rihanna's halftime yeah, show, right. which was an abomination. Yes. Uh, so now everyone's like, "Oh, that's them Christians that want to take away our women's rights and stuff." Right. Yeah. So it, all it did was thrust us into the spotlight. When, yeah. No, I know. You know. And also, too, another thing as well is is what all with the he gets us campaign is, you know, it gets it's hard to. You know, it's always the it's the same thing with Ash with Asbury. You know, with the, the Asbury discussion, like so, is a message about Christ. Is it really a message about Christ without Scripture? You know, like you know, the whole concept is you know, as a Christian myself, when I watch uh, something like that, I think, you know, is is Scripture not sufficient? You know, like we can't give Scripture and give the gospel, and we can't bring Scripture into people because you're kind of you're kind of 
you're kind of implying that, well, you know, people need to be in a certain emotional place before they can see the scriptures because, um, you know, because it, whatever reason, like, isn't scripture sufficient? I've had the same thought when I'm out knocking on doors and I want to use apologetics. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. get sick and tired of having to use worldly means to right. get people to open up to spiritual things. Because yeah. what does the Bible say about the natural man? Right. He can't receive the things of the Spirit. Mm. He's not spiritually discerned. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Lord's Word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Right. There's nothing... It, it almost feels like, well, God... Your your word's pretty good, and it almost got him there. But let me let me just add this first. Mm. Uh, I don't want to tread on that ice. I'm good, you know. Yeah, right, a little bit. Some, yeah, some thin ice. So it's just, I mean, at the cost of what twenty million dollars per commercial? Is that what it was? I think. Uh, yeah, ten or twenty million 10? per personal, I think. per per commercial. It might have been ten. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? That's a big offering plate, and besides, right, yeah, no, it the is. total investment. Mm-hmm. Um, because of all the the production costs and everything, yeah, the stuff that went with it was a hundred million dollars. It was. Is that right? And I've only been able to verify one donor, and that's the CEO of Hobby Lobby. Yeah, that's right. He was one. I I don't know anybody else. Yeah, yeah, right. No, that's right. Can't find him. So, yeah, no, it's true. And then uh, also, too, with the the Asbury revival, you know, like, uh, it's just, it's, you know, it's, I'm really glad for those kids. I mean, I'm really glad for those folks, and I think it's, it's awesome that they're doing what they're doing. But at the same time, you know, like, revival should be, you know, people should be, People should be repenting, you know. I mean, there should be repentance, you know, not right. just. I mean, it's great to praise. I'm glad that they're having. I'm glad they're having prayer, and I'm glad that they're having the experiences that they are. Uh, but you know, there should be repentance. I mean, you should have sinners that are repenting of their sin and coming to coming before the Lord, you know, like in a in a uh, in a revival. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm. I I think preaching the gospel as it was preached in the New Testament by. Paul and, and Peter and, and Timothy and um, how it's presented in the Gospels, how Christ presented it. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, there's some James, like, like we were talking earlier. I mean, yeah, it's, there's some straightforward stuff. Uh, so you, you don't have to browbeat people with it, um, but you do have to present them the truth. And like you said, repentance is part of it. If you don't repent of your sins, if you don't acknowledge you're a sinner, step one, Right. You're not going to heaven. Oh, yeah, right. You know, that's not, it, it might look all nice to what, to us us humans? Not to God, it doesn't. Mm. It doesn't really matter what we think. But yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of things out there today that resemble Christianity. They're, they're counterfeit. Um, and I don't know, I don't know who that's, who's that on? I don't know. Harry Blemeyer's here. He he blames a lot of it on the church itself. Well, I don't know if he blames it necessarily on the church. I mean, he does. Like, it's interesting because some of the stuff has to be seen historically. Like, for example, when he, he he's right when he talks about, for example, sensuality. He says uh, it is urgently necessary to right the balance, especially in this case where the young are concerned. Under the umbrella of current secularism, the body and its pleasures are being affirmed in an undisciplined cult of self-indulgence, unashamedly hedonistic. Uh, and so the, you know, and, and like hedonism, right? So like a lot of people, when they see, they think of hedonism, they mean, and we see that a lot, okay? Like hedonism isn't necessarily evil, okay? To be hedonistic is to simply to do something for pleasure, to make yourself happy, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like to be... Uh, 
you know, hedonism is just the act of making yourself happy. So we have all this undisciplined cult of self-indulgence, unashamedly hedonistic. And then he talks about in denouncing excesses of sensuality, Christians are apt to give the impression that their religion rejects the physical and would tame the enterprising pursuit of vital experience. Uh, you know, that, you know, Christians would think that, oh, uh, you know, you know, it would all be bad. So he suggests that the church use money and take this view to try to uh, bring in, uh, to make the young people understand that they're not, that that they're not, you know, they're not these cosmic killjoys. And yet at the same time, right. we have the, we have the experience of looking back and knowing what came afterwards. And so there has been like this whole push by the church throughout the 90s and even into the 21st century where there's been such a focus on relevance, where the church wants to be relevant that, you know, they go, I, I won't say almost too far, but you got like, uh, you know, um, you know, you got like, a, you got, you know, uh, like, um, you know, you got like uh, in some of these, uh, some of these more, you know, crazy guys, mega churches, you know, you got the pastor running around, you know, looks like a gigolo, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what is too far? Right. How can we define too far? Because it's 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 based on faith, right? Mm-hmm. Whatsoever is not of faith. Yeah, right. Is is sin. That's so right. there can be stuff that maybe looks to us to be not Christian, but then again, that's part of what he's talking about is we've given off this impression uh, largely as Christians that were the super judgmental, like you said, killjoy, just like no fun having people, fun is not right. allowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, like, who wants to be a Christian? It looks, it, it, that's denial of self, mm. right? And that's that's what the world is, is all about now is, you know, uh, be the best you and, uh, you know, um, even the army, army of one. The army, <laughs> I mean, army of one, like, right? Really? That's right, army of one. I mean, seriously, like, if that didn't, uh, just try to kill teamwork and and build up your pride of yourself, but uh, now I guess blame on the church. I guess is not the right word. I guess he's trying to hoist more responsibility onto the church rather and point out like, hey, this is where we're getting this wrong. But I don't, I don't know any Christian if you asked him to like think about this for two seconds, um, to name what do you think that one of the biggest reasons is that other people don't turn to Christianity. Uh, and and they wouldn't at least with one of the first two answers say people just like their lives the way it is. They think Christianity's hard. You have to do something. It's boring. There's all these rules, mm. you know. And we've made it seem that way. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is 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 we we have there's been and this is interesting because you can kind of look at this. Um, uh, there's some discussion about this, I think, on social media these days, and, and some of the Twitter silos that I'm in that talk about this. But it's an, there's an over reliance on this concept of safety, right? And in terms of of a lot, and a lot of it comes from the female point of view, where you know men seek significance and then women seek safety. So this is where you get like the the whole idea of a dangerous man and of a nurturing woman. So um, whereas you know like HR is meant is dominated by women and it's meant to foster a uh an environment of safety and harmony oh, in man. the workplace right yeah so a lot of it is we we have this language of safety and so the language of safety is an inclusive language 
so effectively you're telling people what they can't do. So for example, if someone said like fat shaming, right? So you can say, let's take a look at fat shaming and you say, so-and-so likes to eat a lot of candy. You say, don't eat that candy. The person says, oh, can you believe my uh, my my patriarchal father says that I can't have candy. You know, he, he hates me. And the reason he doesn't want me to have candy is because candy makes me so happy. And my dad doesn't want me to have candy because he thinks I'm fat. And I think that the men fat shaming young girls is causing a whole lot of suicide and terrible stuff. And I think this is a terrible thing. And I think there's so much hate in the world. And boo-hoo-hoo, I don't want to have any more hate. No more hate. No hate. No hate. And then we get that to trend on Twitter and all of a sudden that dads can't say that candy's bad anymore because we're fat shaming or or what have you. And so anyways, so not that this is pervasive, okay, but this does happen. And so what happens is, but what is pervasive is this idea that we can use this this concept of security. You can't say things. So the Bible has a lot of things that you can't do. Right. You have to do things a certain way. You can you have to you you can't do these things. Yeah. And so when we, we and so people will people c- come in, they say, well, if we're going to have all these rules that you you have to do this and you can't do this. Well, then you know, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to that are not going to feel secure because they can't have what they want. Yeah. And so this is one of those um, this is one of those kind of second you know back background principles that we use in our operating system to go through life and it's we don't often talk about it implicitly or explicitly but that's the whole point of a book like this because if we did if it was all explicit and people were saying it out loud all day then there'd be arguments all the time and we'd work it out in a span of a couple of weeks and there'd be a winner and a loser and that's the way it would be but what we do is we, we these things become part of our operating system. We don't need to talk about them to make them real. They just become ever-present in our whole life. And this is where Blue Myers, I think, really hits a nail on the head. Christians need only a fully formed Christian mind can see these things for what they are, and then you call it out immediately, immediately, and, and then you, you, you give it pushback so that it, it doesn't get a chance to become part of the cultural operating yeah, system. Yeah, like fester. Yeah. And grow and turn into a bad game of telephone. Right, right, right. Yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> which, which is what's happened. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And he talks about it here. He says, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, in this matter, the church, he's talking about young people here. Mm-hmm. In this matter, the church has too readily handed over the young to be instructed by materialistic psychologists and amoral aesthetics. Yep. Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, these... Uh, these people of beauty, right? So it's not the beauty behind the beauty. So they want to say, oh, well, we want to see things that are beautiful, right? Well, they don't give the truth behind what actual beauty is. Or um, yeah, psychology, which is uh, very subjective. Yeah, they don't give God's truth, you yeah. know, what what God's standards are. And I don't mean to pass the buck on to God here, but, uh, you know, while Christianity is not a do-do-do religion, it's a done religion, Right. God does have standards for us. Yeah, a living Christian mind would elucidate for the young a finely articulated Christian sacramentalism, right, which would make sense of and give value to the adolescent's cravings. Uh, You know, and and this is where... uh, So when he says uh, here, he's talking about the sacraments, right, the things that that Christians do, and for whichever... uh, whichever, 
you know, church that you're in, there should be things. And he talks about giving them value to the adolescent's cravings. So the adolescent may have a craving for, uh, may have a craving for beauty. And so the church needs to come along and give and embrace beauty as a Christian discipline. You know, there are many, and especially for men too, for, for boys, right? So for, um, you know, uh, especially for boys, um, Christian boys need something to do. You know, they need things to do. So, uh, Christian disciplines, right? You can, uh, for example, uh, things like, um, you know, uh, fasting is something that you can do. You know, so uh, that and and it's hard. And so men need something that's hard, something that to do. Um, you know, uh, working and through the church and the community, and then connecting uh, different things. These are all different sacraments that, that, that are involved with the church. And so, when you are able to be intentional about reaching out to an adolescent's cravings, and he mentions them here: grandeur, uh, natural scenery, uh, potent emotionalism of music. Right. So the potent emotionalism of music, like there's got to be it. Like you don't necessarily have to have powerfully emotive music. Uh, for young people, but you should speak to that desire as some sort of legitimate desire, and you should have some sort of way that the church can can meet that need. Yeah, or at least speak God's truth to it. Yeah. Because that's what gets left out. Because it's... To me, man, the, the Bible is a lot more simple than... Uh, especially, I, I think, the, the religious... Stance where Blumeyer's comes from here, uh, when when he wrote the this book, yeah. You said he's what what church is he from? Is, is a, I think he's an Anglican, I right? Think. So, to me, that's a little more regimented than uh, the the pure word of God. To mm. me, it just it seems like there's a little more legalism than than there should be. Um, but if you're just bringing up, how does it how does it say to raise a child? Bring him up in uh, yeah. the admonition of the Lord, right? Yeah. Train a child up in in the way in which he shall go, and he shall not depart from it. Mm. I mean, it's there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. It's just very simple, and it's just repeated over and over. It's just, it's not, is is when the when the Ten Commandments are are listed again in the New Testament, the one that's left out is is the fourth, the, the Sabbath commandment. Mm. And what does it say at the end? If there be any other commandments, is briefly understood. I mean, could there be any more like laissez-faire statement there? Yeah. I mean, it's it because it's a personal relationship, and instead we've turned it into this like, well, you got to be a part of this huge organization that has a bunch of rules. That's what turns people off from it. There doesn't like if you're saying we got to look for something for boys and orient them in the right direction. No, we just have to be there for them as godly men and whatever comes up in their mind no matter what it is why don't you seek out god's word that'd be good practice what does the bible have to say about it? that's why i tell my kids anything anything they say to me that i can tell them why don't you see what the bible has to say about it hmm. check god's word just see there's an answer for everything in there you you may not like it when I first became a Christian, this is what I used to tell people. I'm like, look, the Bible is a book of inconvenient truths, okay? I'm just going to tell you right now, there's some things in there that you're not yeah. going to like at first, okay? But eventually, you'll you'll come to find out it's better for you. It's the truth. Once you, once you realize it's the truth and you 
accept it and you start living that way, you 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 figure out it's better for you. No different than, and and the Bible makes this comparison as well. Mm. No different than having a father here on earth. You know, may not like everything your parents tell you. Yeah, but it's for your it's for your best interest. You know, um, he he does talk about the uh, the schools and and how they teach um, sex ed uh, essentially. Oh yeah, he does. You yeah. know, and he says that he basically says that they've they've boiled it down to pretty much just the, a, a biological thing. Well, yeah, and he talks. He says the psychologist, by the very nature of psychology, tends to reduce the significance of use romantic experiences to the physical level. You know, what every, every, everything's based on the five senses. What What else do you if if your kid goes to a public school? Yeah. What else do you want them teaching your kid? By the way, I don't. No matter what school they go to, what else do you want a school teaching your kid? Mm. That was one of my questions. I read that and I was like, okay, time out. And I don't know. I was hoping you had an answer for that because I, I, I take issue with that. I don't want in anyone. terms of yeah. No, well, I don't want anyone talking to my kids about about sex. Well, that's, right? Yeah, I'm a parent. That's it's right. my job. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. And I think that's the general consensus view. I don't think Blue Myers is saying anything against that here. Um, well, he, he says that that's all. I mean, he makes that implication. Well, he makes the implication that that's all that they're concerned about, that they're not concerned with the spiritual. Remember, in 1961, especially in the UK and Europe, there may have been still a connection between the general discourse and spirituality. You know, no one will touch spirituality. People people are willing to talk to your kid about whether they want to be a boy or a girl and, you know, and all these things. And wear, <laughs> you know, wear a chest binder and all these sorts of things. Yeah. But uh, they're not able to, but they're not, they wouldn't consider, they would consider it to be complete sacrilege to talk about spiritual matters, you know? Yeah, that's like, that's hands off right Yeah, That's like lose your career. I mean, you think about it this way, okay, right? Like back in 1961 or in that period of time, then everyone would, it would be considered to be maybe, you know, maybe kind of, you know, maybe a little uncomfortable, but generally people would talk about spirituality all the time. And then if someone who wanted to have a sex change operation then would be considered to be an outlier and a weirdo. Well, you know, who had a right to his own opinion in his own mind. So now it's the exact opposite. Now everyone talks about, you know, transgenderism and this sort of thing like it's water, like it's nothing. Like you're talking about, like, just, you're talking about yeah, the weather. No big right? deal. Yeah. And yet, if you want to talk about Christ or you want to talk about spirituality, then people are like, whoa, 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 I don't need to talk about these outliers and these weirdos. You just do what you do and don't mention it. And, you know, you live your life and I'll live mine and then we're out of here. So it's now exactly. So, you know, we've now, we are like, it's switched around completely. So it's actually, it's interesting when Bill Myers here talks about spiritual matters, I have to oftentimes stop and then I have to give myself a new context. Like yeah. he's talking about a context that doesn't exist any longer. Right. Right. You know, like there's <laughs> no, you know, he's thinking like, well, hey, the school teacher might want to think about God every once in a while. And they might want to say, hey, this is a good thing for spirituality. Right. Like that's not like that's not the world we live in. You know, well, I'm behind you by a few years. Oh, yeah. To be fair. <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. Right. There you go. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's talking about the romanticism of youth, and I actually thought right. I thought it was fairly innocent. I mean, when he was talking about it, I thought, man, you know, that's kind of a problem that I'd really like to have. You know, it'd be kind of nice to have those problems. What youth? <laughs> right, yeah, right, or just trying to handle this, you know, cynicism of youth and all. Well, in a way, you are right now. 
Yeah, it says, uh, yeah, yeah, it's true in a way. It says, uh, it tends to develop a self-conscious and calculated attitude to one's personal experiences of pleasure, you know, which provides, so he's talking about psychology here and the, the uh, subjectiveness of psychology and its moral view. And he says it provides a convenient foundation for cynicism, self-indulgence, and insensitive exploitation of others. Insensitive exploitation of others. Yeah, you know, which I thought I thought was about I thought was about right. Yeah, that that one rings true today. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I I I think that's still still relevant for sure. Um, moving down. Yeah. When he says, "Nor will the Christian mind allow these richness of life to be vaguely identified with the sins of the flesh, or even with a life of the body which it is." the Christian mind's duty to transcend. Mm. Uh, I That's a lot of big words. Right. Um, I got out of that abstaining from the appearance of all evil. When when I broke that down, that's where I kind of went with what he was trying to say there. Yeah. If you have a Christian mind, you're not going to allow yourself to appear... Um, because it talks about your your body, right? Mm. Um, which uh, the Bible says, you know, be holy as I am holy. Holy is set apart, and, and mm. we know that we are bought with a price. We're not our own. Yeah, uh, we're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so, abstaining from the appearance of all evil that that covers a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the the biggest of which is being a witness for Christ, which is our biggest mission here mm. on earth. Mm. I, I took that to be a, a much bigger statement um, in the chapter than, uh, than maybe even he meant it. I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It does talk about the psychologist after that. And um, where it says the psychologist by the very nature of psychology tends to reduce the significance of use, romantic experiences, the physical love, like you were saying, you know? Mm. Um, yes. But yeah, I don't know. That's, that's just kind of where, I, I went with that one. Um, it's interesting. He talks about um, he talks about having. He says because youth is romantic, an articulate Christian romanticism must be made available for them. You know, and and I think he. It's interesting because he's a bit prologue here. Okay, they say past his prologue. He's actually yeah. talking about um, uh, uh, an argument that has kind of come out of the academic circles at this point. I think in 1961, this wasn't really a, a an argument that was uh, that was out in the normal discourse, but I think these days it's probably a little bit more popular, uh, you know, to talk, because he talks about art, right? He says, the classical spirit in art proclaims by implication that man can achieve on earth representations of beauty and harmony, which are wholly satisfying to him. So this is kind of like the Nietzsche, the Nietzschean view, right? So effectively like Nietzsche and, and even Tolstoy a little bit, but that a lot of people, they... They look to art, all right? So they said, okay, well, existential angst can be channeled through art, like through art and beauty. So, for example, if some, like the whole concept of virtue. So if virtue is seeking the good life, and then what you view, what many people view to be the good life can be represented in art. Uh, and so, um, so, for example, if many people think that standing in a field with a grove of trees is peaceful, and many people agree, well, then painting trees, a grove of trees, and having that to be representative for all people is a way to kind of flatten out existential angst. Uh, and then I think it was uh, Tolstoy in his book, What is Art? He talks about how 
there's always a divine representation like behind art. So if you see a great, if you see a picture of a, so for example, if you see a, a sculpt, a sculptor, like you see a sculpture, and the sculpture is this magnificent sculpture of a, of say like a, a lion. And when you see it, all you can think of is how majestic and brave the lion is. And and nothing more, nothing makes you feel it more than this sculpture because it's so amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then this would be this would this kind of art would point to a larger abstract. This uh, this abstract of majesty and courage and bravery, right? Which ultimately come from God, right? They don't come from humans because humans are sinners. And so we're all broken people. But, you know, for God is the ultimate majesty. So, you know, that art can art can point to the creator. So, uh, for example, I think what Blumeyers is saying here is, you know, he says, the classical spirit in music, art, architecture, and literature is represented in the supposed attainment of forms whose beauty is a completeness, a completeness which offers serenity and satisfaction to the soul of man. So, you know, I I don't think he's saying that that Christianity and churches should not have those art. They should lean into it. You know, one thing that we did uh, in our family that was pretty beneficial, was pretty cool, was, um, well, I was in a, uh, it started in a church. I was in a church one time. And the pastor at the church gave a sermon series where he talked about uh, different hymns of the faith, and he talked about the stories behind those hymns and um, and and the reason why they wrote those songs. And some of the hymns uh, have some amazing stories behind them, uh, stories of tragedy and stories of loss. And 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 when you, you, you know, th- these are people that had every reason to abandon God, and yet for some reason they leaned into God and they held on to God for dear life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, knowing that. that that really was a wonderful ser- uh, series to listen to, and now um, my wife my wife bought a book, uh, which is a book of of hymns, and it's got the different stories behind each hymn. Every oh, story, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So every every hymn, and it comes with a CD, so you can read about the hymn, and then you can sing the hymn after you're done, and and that's something that she that she's done with our family, and it's been pretty great. Uh, but we're able to. But when you can, you have those stories behind those hymns, you realize like when you're singing the hymns. Every hymn is a story of a person who, a person who overcame, a person who struggled, a person who, you know, so when, for example, when young people go to a church and they're singing hymns, they shouldn't just be thinking, oh, you know, how does this hymn make me feel? They should be thinking of the beauty and of the beauty and the, um, uh, and the majesty, like and the, the passion it was written with, yeah, yeah, and, and the struggle that yeah. was behind it, the story that it was written with, and the things that people went through yeah. to actually put those words down and and to be able to do that, and so uh, you know that's about a lot, that's very different from say for example a you know Nashville Tennessee CCM you know three chord uh, progression written by someone who may or may not be a Christian for a Christian band that you know you can put words through maybe it's just you know one four five progression or whatever it is, and then you can get this emotionalism behind it by singing the chorus, but. You know, that's different from, say, for example, someone who lost his family in a shipwreck and then, you know, thought about taking his own life and then decided to cling to God at the last moment, you know. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I think that, I think we head down the path of legalism there. I've, I've, I've been in some, some sermons uh, in, in some churches and some, some sermons were preached, uh, about music and about beats and um me personally uh i've 
I mean, I've I've written music. I, I I've loved music since I was a kid, mm-hmm. and uh, there are definitely some hymns that I like. Uh, you yeah, know, I've gotten to to play um, guitar with the church. Um, Love me a good hymn. Yeah, yeah. So, but also, there's some there's some good, really good country songs. Now, I have no idea whether or not uh, these people are Christian. I don't know if anyone's a Christian, right? Because I I know all I know is what you claim. I don't even know if you're a Christian. I know what you claim. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's between you and God. I mm-hmm. can't like I can't stress that enough. Right. So for me, uh, I think when we say what music is uh, is set apart and what music is holy, I I think we get into legalism because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If if I if I have faith and and I know you know what what does Paul say? Nothing in and of itself is unclean. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with com- what comes out of your heart. I mean, if you're, right. um, if you're, you know, Jesus said, "What goes, you know, what comes out of the heart and li- you know is eternal, and then what goes into the body exits the body." You know. Yeah. So the I think a lot of it is what comes out of your heart because otherwise you could place an, uh, some sort of objective uh, beat to it. You know, like the nowhere in the Bible does it say, "Well, when you get above four and a half beats per per minute, then that's <laughs> right. that's no good. Then the door slams shut and you can't get into the kingdom of heaven." Right. But when you keep it below four and a half beats then that means that your mansion gets increased by 5%. You know, right. it doesn't work that way. Right, right. Right. You know, I mean, that would be, could you, I mean, I wouldn't want to get up and have to stand before God and God would say, well, you know, Tom, I, I think it's unfortunate, but at some point in time, you did listen to a song <laughs> that had more than four and a half beats per minute. And although, you, I mean, you know, you seem like you got blood on you and it seems like it's all going well, we got rules up here, you know, well, so. Love and covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, and then I would, and then, yeah, and then I would say to God, like, wait a minute, like, you never told me. Like, I, I don't recall somebody telling me that, that I could that you know, I couldn't listen to anything with four and a half beats per minute. So all manner of sin shall be forgiven, except four and a half beats a minute. Right, right. So, so I do think it's what comes out of the heart. So uh, eight hundred and twenty-three times in the KJV, the Bible says, "heart." It says "heart." Heart. Eight hundred and twenty-three times. Eight hundred and twenty-three times the word "heart" is in there, and uh, it is. Amen. It is all about your heart. That is absolutely what you will answer for. Yeah. Because it's it's just clear. You know what, what does the Bible say? Um, out of the abundance of the uh, what is it? Out of the mouth proceedeth the abundance of the heart, mm. right? And, and what are we going to give an account for? Sure, every, every idle word that we've spoken. But where did that come from? Mm. Came from the heart. That's it. You know, if, if you're to commit the one unpardonable sin, where's that going to come from? Your mouth, right? You know, which comes from your heart. That's that's the root of the whole thing. Yep. Um. So. Th- with the the with the children theme, there's one other thing in here that I, I, I noted. It says if we do not sympathize with romanticism, we do not sympathize with youth. Mm. If the church does not reckon with romanticism, it does not cater for the young. And yeah. we gotta meet them where they're at. We and by we I mean mature Christians. Yeah. We have to meet them with the word of God where they happen to be at spiritually in their walk with God. Whatever they need, whether, it, you know, they're somewhere between milk and meat. You know what I'm saying? When, when it yeah. comes to the Word of God. And me personally, like, I'm still being counseled by Christians that are more mature in the faith than I am. Yeah. You know? My faith is strong, but I don't know every single thing in the Bible. Yeah. You know? So there's there's things you've pointed out to me. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're supposed to do. Until he comes back, or until we go to be with him, one of the two, um, 
we should be doing that, though, with the youth. And that's what uh, Bill Myers is emphasizing here. And you can remember being, uh, you know, like, can you remember being a kid? It's a long, long time ago. I can. I know I can. Yeah. So when I was young and I first started dating, I mean, man, that's a strong feeling that comes over you when you, you have your first girlfriend. And, yeah. I don't know, your second girlfriend, your third girlfriend, whatever. Uh, those are some really strong feelings. And if you don't know where to point them, where to aim them, things can go wrong really, really quick. Yeah. But I, I guess back then it seems like it was a, a subject that the church just avoided altogether. I, I don't know. Or or maybe the public did. But it seems like he's saying the church wasn't taking enough um, responsibility and talking about it enough. You know, because he's saying right here, the church, if the church does not reckon with romanticism, it does not cater for the young. You know? Yeah. No, it, I think it, it, a lot of it is... I was really struck at that point as I was reading along with you at the beginning of that paragraph there. And I was really struck at that part of the chapter. All right. So I actually thought Myers was, you know, I, I, I was really impressed. I mean, I, I don't think he intended to write anything uh, soaringly uh, profound then, but I thought that that was maybe one of the more profound parts of the book, um, that section. Yeah. Because he's talking about the realm of experience. And so romanticism meets romanticism meets the young person it's going to happen whether or not you want it or not and so i, I do think that i think that uh so i, I think what bill myers did now it sounds here like i'm speaking for bill myers and i'm kind of not theorizing so it seems to me like he's talking about in 1961 you you have the realm of experience so what is reality is the reality the potential experience or is it the experience itself? We dealt with this a little bit when we uh, were with Dostoevsky and we were doing our uh, our series on notes from Blunderground, uh, excuse me, notes from underground. And so uh, uh, we talked about speaking about uh, the knowledge of a thing versus the experience of a thing right <laughs> like it said so much okay. yeah and <laughs> at least did. that stuck with me well it really did no it did and it got so much and in terms of uh you know in in terms of the the different so for example like you you're a soldier right so i mean that's you know that's your background and so that's your experience so you have had the experience so i'm going to say the experience of combat so there's the experience of combat which is what you've experienced okay which is an authentic combat experience then there's an, another level of experience where say for example that you are working with combat veterans and so you are working with combat veterans you yourself have not been in combat and yet you've spoken with others who have been a legitimate experience okay. and then you have a third level where say for example you have like a, a movie uh, or uh, it's an abstract you know so maybe someone's doing a movie about combat experience and you really don't have you're even further away from that primary source uh, even though you can still generate this sense of of anticipation, okay? So the, the, he talks about this here. I, I think if I can find it quickly, the dreams and the longings of youth uh, do not uh, do not lose their edge or their delight. Uh, he talks about. Um, Oh yeah. When dreams are yeah, it, it, is, yeah, yeah, you see, and he talks about that there. And I'm gonna read this whole section here eventually, but so but when you're watching a movie, right, about a combat experience, mm -hmm. then you can feel a sense of a sense of anticipation. You can feel a sense of uh, a sense of longing, and you can even feel uh, kind of a sense of an accomplishment there. And yet 
to in the and yet you would identify with all these, right? When before you entered combat, was there a sense of anticipation? I'm sure there was. You know, yeah. when, you know, when you <laughs> yeah, you know, when there when you when things were over, was there a feeling of completion? Yeah, there was. Yet there was lots of feelings. Right, lots of feelings. <laughs> yet at the one time <laughs> so yet at the one sense you still have at the one sense you have this longing. And then at the other sense and then at the other sense you have um you have a kind of like this longing, but then you have the real thing. And so uh with with church and the church, what we can do is we point people to scripture because scripture points us towards not necessarily the image, right? It's not the image of a thing, it's the thing itself. So yeah. for example, uh so for example, uh the, the church when for the church to say that you would have a sense of longing, say a longing for uh say a longing for uh for uh for courage, right? And so uh, the um, you know the church can talk about courage in scripture. It can talk about the courage to you know go and tell someone about about Christ. You know it can talk. It can have all these. Um, uh, you know we can uh, can celebrate courage within the community. Uh, and so they can um, uh, they can talk about uh, uh, godly courage and the way that uh, someone can build their faith uh, using courage. And so these are real things. Whereas. Uh, what happens is with romanticism, romanticism always gives way to reality. So what you do is you're going too high, and then you're too low, right? So uh, here I'm gonna I'll read this section, and maybe I'm not making sense. And if I'm not, that's okay. So there's you read that section. Was a no, great you're probably section. making sense. You're just talking above me like usual. No, no, no. Here <laughs> I'm gonna read you this section here, and it starts right where you got done. You said um, if the church does not reckon with romanticism, it does not cater for the young. Mm-hmm. And I thought that section of the chapter that you pointed out was probably the best section. I really enjoyed it. Here yep. it says strange longings are stirred in us by the grandeur of natural scenery by the beauty of music and art, by the eyes and voice of the lover or the beloved. The general belief is that in youth, these longings are most profound and perturbing. All right, so they bother us more, okay, and they're very profound. They take over our lives. Oh, yeah. Whether this is true or not, it is certain that in youth, these longings are accompanied by raptures and excitements, which the more mature in years are sadly incapable of recapturing. All right, so this is uh, is interesting where he starts. He he starts off with this chasm between the young who experience this sense of uh, of of anticipation, and the older who cannot recapture it. Yeah, it's almost euphoric. You know, I am facing this very chasm right now, and <laughs> so uh, and uh, so uh, here I can be I can be transparent. I don't know if I want to be overly transparent, but my son is. We're in the I'm in the process of kind of launching my son. My son is 18. And so um, he is becoming. That means he already launched. He is becoming. He, <laughs> he is becoming more independent and capable every day. And so me as a dad and as someone as his father, I, I'm dealing with this exact process now. So he talks about uh, the more mature in years are incapable of recapturing. And I've uh, I've told him this right. I told him this because it's true, right? He's at the cusp, okay, so he spent 18 years looking for a grand adventure, like a dragon to fight, and he looks out and he sees the world, and the world is, is, is an all-consuming fire that's waiting to be, to be tamed. And so and I told him the other day, we were talking, and I said, you know, think about it from my point of view. I said, you know, because one, one time, one day, years ago, I was him. I said, you know, years ago, I was you, but I can never stand on that precipice again. 
You know, like mm-hmm. for me, for me personally, I, I can never, at no point in time in my life can I ever sit on the edge of the cliff again and look out over the cliff yeah. and see that grand vista of possibility. You know, yep. it's nothing but possibility in front of me, and it's all laid out. Everything the light touches. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right, you're right. There you go, everything the light touches, right? <laughs> so, the you know, all that grand possibility. So I can never stand there again. So, you know, and, and I'm trying to explain to him, like, that's the chasm between you and me, right? Like, you, you get to do this, and my job is to get you to realize where you are. But the thing that separates us is that I can never be where you are. And actually, that doesn't really happen, you know? Like... He's my responsibility, but now that he's older, he's not my responsibility any longer. So for me, it's like there's like this chasm where he's got to experience it and move forth. And I can never step there with him because I can't be there again. You know, like I'm, 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 I'm middle aged now. So, you know, it's like <laughs> you've admitted it. Right. Yeah. So now I've admitted it. You know, so it, it says, so it says the more mature in years are sadly incapable of recapturing. In youth, these longings are themselves a keen delight. All right. So that the youth will sometimes listen contently to those who tell them uh, aspiration is more wonderful than achievement. Right. So, and this is pretty important, right? So, the youth, right? A youth is willing. So, um, back in 1961, like, the young people are more willing to listen to the Beatles than they were their pastor. All right. Because the Beatles, when they, they sing, you know, you know, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so you get like the Beatles tell you that aspiration is more wonderful than achievement. You know, the dream is more joyful than the reality. The thought of a thing is superior to the thing itself. It sounds like delayed gratification. Yeah, and it comes back around to the underground man's existence. You know, remember the underground man? And so, you know, in his existence where he he lived and conceived and he built a thought world that was based upon his thought of things, his abstraction of things, and he never bothered to actually deal with the thing itself. Whereas he would have had this grounded life, right? Like he would have had like this grounded life by dealing with the things that he could deal with. And yet he had lived by himself in like this thought world, overthinking everything because he was able, because he was able to conceive everything, but not the, you know, everything about a thing. So, yeah. and he says in, in age, uh, so yeah, so anyhow, they do all connect to these things. In age, the longings, once so delightful, lose their edge. They become tinged with melancholy and even with bitterness as the the sorrowful truth is grasped that beauty fades and love grows cold, that music and art can cease to captivate, that friends die, and that life is short. So, uh, you know, you... Did you just read me Ecclesiastes 12? Right there, there you go. Yeah, no, I hear you. Ecclesiastes. Yeah, there's a reason in my favorite book of the Bible. That's right. And it says when losing, when longing, when longing loses its flavor. All right, and that's important, right? When longing loses, because that's where when you're 18 and you're standing out uh, on the cliff and you see infinite possibility. Here, the longing is kind of the point. When longing loses its flavor, it is sad to have to believe that longing itself is the heart of joy mm-hmm. and the image of fulfillment, is an idle fantasy. Right. So, but isn't that what we long for? I mean, right. Hebrews 11, one, right. You know, you don't want to have, you know, a lot of times people, one of the reasons the church should brace romantic uh, romanticism is that if, if the experience of life 
is to embrace the longing, to embrace the longing rather than the experience. Then, and when you finally get to the point of experience, then you find that the image of fulfillment is better than the fulfillment itself, right? Then you get there. I mean, what we what do we preach in the church? I mean, right in in Christianity, we preach, hey, we long for right. It's what we what we hope for. Yeah. So yeah, what we hope for, and so what we long for, we long to be with God. We long to pass away from this world. We long to uh, be to we long to uh, be obedient in the way that we wish to be. Well, we're supposed so, to preach well, that way. Right. Some of them preach the other. Way so when you get so (laughs) right so if a person's experience is that when they reach for what they long for then it's it then then it is a letdown then in the church if we just say hey you know I know that you thought uh, for example let's say here when dreams are no longer stirred in us by mountain peaks or by passionate symphonic movements by the sweep of a girl's hair or the falling of her eyelids. It is melancholy to have to believe that the dreams themselves are the truest delights that we are to taste and that the reality they seem to mirror is a fiction of the beguiling brain. So, you know, he so uh, so anyhow, uh, you know, we have these uh, these peaks. Right. So if you have this, uh, you say, well, when you saw the mountain. And you saw it was beautiful, and then you hiked up the mountain, and you pulled your, you know, you you pulled your muscle, and you threw out your back, and you know, and it was cloudy at the top and cold, and now you're laid out in a hospital bed because you know you're you're, you're out of shape. Then you know the reality is not as good as the dream, and so then you go into church and people say, well, don't worry about the mountain. You know, like, so, uh, you know, don't worry about the mountain. What you can do is long for God, and then things will be okay. You know, and people say, oh, okay, you're you're teaching people the this experience by rejecting romanticism you know so you're rejecting romanticism and yet i think there is this place for romanticism he says uh um so he goes on to say the alternative is to believe that longing is only longing after all Mm -hmm. and that the dream is only a dream but that fulfillment and satisfaction remain as ever an offering to man from beyond the world and this, of course, is the Christian view. Yeah. It is also the common sense view. If the dreams and longings of youth did not lose their edge and their delight, but moved to culmination in a final, though finite, satisfaction, then we should have less cause to know our, homel- our homelessness on earth. Because they lose their intrinsic joy, we know our early dreams and longings for what they are the pointers to fulfillment and reality, not the ends themselves. You know, so for the church to embrace romanticism is to say, hey, a young man looks at a young girl and sees beauty. Great, yeah, that's a real thing. But the real beauty is not in this world. The real beauty is projected into the world from beyond the world. And the real beauty is with God. You know, the real courage is with God. The real significance is with God. The real security is with God. And so when things like security and significance and love and, uh, uh, and, and all righteous endeavors can be related, uh, those experiences can be related as coming from outside of reality, from God, then all people are earnestly hoping and searching for the same thing. This church becomes a unifying force for society, and society can then order itself. 
right? Mm-hmm. That's why one person could be an atheist, but you can't have the whole country be an atheist, right? Because there's no order. So, you know, by doing this, by speaking into these experiences, not only do we eliminate, like, some of the mid middle age angst, you know, the disappointment, you know, and when we, uh, you know, when we, um, uh, you know, people say... Uh, uh, so maybe say people say I got some investment. The investments uh, gonna uh, uh, turn out really well. People go, oh yeah, it's really good. Good for you, man. You know, uh, we'll keep you in prayer. Make sure that uh, you know, we'll keep it. You know, uh, we'll keep you in prayer. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know. But then the reality, you know, is that is that hey, you know, good for you. You'll be able to do a lot for God. You know, because you know, even though you know, money gives freedom and and it gives freedom and power. The real freedom is freedom in Christ. You know, and so, you know, these things. So, you know, a person who wants freedom from, uh, you know, a person that wants, uh, say, for example, uh, the freedom of financial independence uh, is can have that. But it's it's not the freedom. The actual independence from there is not the point. The point it comes from beyond the earth and what projected into the earth. Uh, you know, for example, um, you know, in marriage. So that's another good example in marriage. Security and significance. Um, uh, a woman oftentimes seeks security from her husband and a man seeks significance from his wife. Well, those are based in the world. And so uh, people who are not told at an early age that the security that you seek from your husband is nothing more than an abstraction of what you need from God. And the best thing for you to do is to go to God directly and seek your need for security from God. And then, you know, and then, uh, and so for your husband, conversely, seek your significance from God and not from your wife, right? And seek it directly from God. And so then the man and the wife are both looking to God for their needs rather than looking to each other for their needs. And so therefore, by speaking into that need, the saying the, the romantic need and the, the, that need of romanticism for love and security and significance, that can exist within a marriage framework. You can speak to people that way, but yet you speak to them from a way that's rooted in the Christian experience where those ultimately come from outside of our reality rather than to tell people, hey, you know, you seem like you have a good marriage. Good for you. And then I'm going to I'm going to pray for you guys. And people think that, OK, well, Christianity is about hand clapping and about praying and about, you know, people doing a great job and, and all that sort and of thing. whatever we think is good in society. Yeah, whatever we right. define as good. Yeah, exactly. Whatever, you know, we decide or whatever you decide is good, you know, or, or, or what have you. And but no, actually speaking into the uh, young people, into that into that need for romanticism and then uh, building that up into where people are are looking to the church that allows the church when he and, and like, for example, when he talks about the church and the parishes and then he talks about the, the, the preachers and the churches that, you know, this allows them to work with the people and to give society an order where it can be ordered underneath a a, a Christian mind. Right. Right. You know. Yeah, well, people, it, it kind of reminds me of idolatry, right? So, like, you're talking about yeah. adults, and a lot of this has been focused on youth, and then it does go back to youth. Uh, there's an extremely uh, interesting part about the public school down here. Yeah. A little bit further down. All right. That, that okay. one's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, But, you know, idolatry, uh, like we've talked about before, I think, in other podcasts, uh, covetousness is idolatry. So, like, idolatry really is a, is a broad term. People... People think you got to be like bowing down in front of some statue. No, not in at order all. to right, it, yeah. and that's that's not it at all. Like no. what what you just described, 
like putting our version of good ahead of God's. That's yeah. idolatry. It We're is. making ourselves to be God. Yeah, no, the, a lot of a lot of idolatry is actually found in our thought patterns mm-hmm. and the way that we, and it's what the Bible talks about when it talks about double-mindedness, yeah. you know, that we actually come to conclusions, um, you know, that, that we come to conclusions that oftentimes don't make sense. So this, this is the conversation, and a lot of times, this is the conversation where the believers don't have these conversations with non-believers, you know, like the, I think a lot of Christians could be led to, uh, uh repentance and, uh, and also, um, uh, and also a realignment of their, their, their thinking, you know, in, in terms of their actions, uh, because a lot of it is, and a lot of time, and it can be different things. Sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's political, uh, and sometimes it's it's just you know the, the way that we're raised and we're raised with certain thought patterns, and uh, and other times it's in the language. You know we use different language. You know and the Christians will come up with different words that they'll use for each other, and those words can have very specific definitions, which really become very confusing and can actually work against us when we're speaking you know to a, a non Christian. So you know sometimes it can have to do with language, uh, but. Uh, you know, we, we do, I, I sometimes think that there would be more, you know, if non-Christians could speak to Christians a lot of times about some of the things that, uh, that, that, that they see as hypocritical or that are hypocritical, then I think there could be an adjustment. Absolutely. I'll use an extreme example in the Bible here, and I know some people throw this under the eschatology thing, but I think the Bible's pretty clear on this. Mm. When it comes to speaking in tongues, uh, yeah, okay, it talks about don't do it because if somebody walks in that's unlearned, yeah, right, 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 they're gonna be like, "What is going on here? Y'all are a bunch of crazy people." Right. Yeah. Of course, I'm loosely paraphrasing the Bible here. Sure. But that is. <laughs> right. that I is think that the, was the Greek, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's trans. That's right. Yeah. That's how it translates back. There you go. But anyway, no, that's exactly the teaching there. You know. Yeah. Like, just just talk to yourself about it, okay? Right. Right. Because we don't want people thinking we're totally nuts. You know, keep it simple. I'm excited to get this public school thing. Can can, can we go there? Yes, we can. Yeah. Okay, all Let's right. See if I can find it. <laughs> this is great. So, uh, he's talking about idolatry with um, the youth, and basically, like you know, they'll they'll idolize pop singers and and everything else you could possibly think of. That- yes, the artistic cult, right? Yeah, they- yeah. There's the artistic cult of uninhibited personal creativeness, spontaneity, and originality, which breeds a moral religious devotion to intemperate neurotic personalities. Yeah. Yeah, right. So um that would be like there is a there is a cult of art uh where basically it's like neurotic personalities, right? So crazy people, right? There yeah. is a moral religious devotion to it uh or oh, a moral religious devotion. Is that groupies? Is that what that is? Is that like <laughs> Sounds like something from your your era, I don't know. Maybe, maybe something from my era. <laughs> groupies. Right. I didn't know that ended. So. Uh we got different words for them these days. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> is that right? You probably do. Say, oh man, I'd have to mark this podcast as something different on you. Prob- online probably probably would. Yeah, yeah. that would be my, a- my generation's messed up. Yeah. By the way, I figured out I missed Generation X by four years. Yeah, by four years. Yeah, four years. I didn't it, realize I was off that bad. Listen, man, it was a great four years. I mean, I really don't remember it. Shut it was. Up. A- <laughs> I'm a millennial by four years. This is dumb. I know. I hate my generation. Know, man, it was a great four years. 
I mean, it really, yeah, really was. Mm, sure it was. <laughs> 1980s is the cutoff, by the way. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, it is the 80s. Yeah, yeah. that's right. The 80s were great. It's, yeah. It's the, I don't know who defined that. Yeah, no doubt. One of you great. Gen Xers, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. That didn't like somebody from 81. Hey, man, don't be ragging on the Gen Xers, man. We did not get it. We didn't get our anything. We got no fair share, no nothing, right? We get nothing. <laughs> you know, we get, we, get, we get podcasting in a dark room. That's what we get, you know? Dark room. Oh, that's right. No, okay. Well, there's lights on in here. Oh. <laughs> What? Let's go to your studio. <laughs> I know. No, listen. Hey, 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 hey. Bring right? it down. will be ragging on the studio no, here. No, bring it down. I'm not ragging on the studio. Listen, That's Underground Studios up, is man. probably the greatest studio in the history of studios. It's, to- it's top notch. We got a clock. Yeah. We got Optimus Prime. I've got, I've got, listen. There's I, a real cannon in here. There, uh, we got a real cannon, an there's actual a, There's cannon, an actual cannon. An actual cannon. In the studio. I got microphones to play guitars. I've got, I've got, uh, like, Sign. I've got like signed cards of Heinz Ward. Me. I've got. Uh, yeah. I've got Steve. I've got Steve. Dude, I'm here. I got my wingman Steve here. I mean, He's all there. I mean, it's all good. I mean, yeah. I got the red walls, man. You got the red walls. It it is red in here. It's red. It's right. fantastic. All right. Don't tell them nothing else about the underground bunker. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. This is so this is also nuclear fallout shelter. Oh, right, that's right. For when World War Three strikes right, us very right. soon. That's right. You got the depending ur- on when you're listening to this. Right. You, you got the uranium a- shielding in there, yes, yeah, Steve. I don't know if you can catch us on a ham radio on Spotify. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so check that's this right. out. Check this out. Hey, uh, you know that's a good way to get an audience. Actually, you know, it's like you know you put in the uranium shielding, and then you know you have like mass genocide, and then I guess you're the only one left, right? And there you go. You Gen Xers are weird. <laughs> so check out. It says the Christian mind recognizes that youth instinct to en- uh, envelop experiences of music, sex, and communal adventure with deep, passionate significance is fundamentally healthy. Youth's tendency to idealize, even to idealize the pop singer and the film star, springs from the instinct to spiritualize earthly experience which is part of redeemed mankind's divine endowment. It is therefore logical and necessary that the fact of youthful romanticism should be subsumed into the theology of divine creation, incarnation, redemption, and salvation. But it is unfortunately more common in the educational world to find youthful romanticism interpreted in platonic terms that specifically Christian terms. This is one of the legacies of that 19th century public school ethos in which triumphant secularism masqueraded and still masquerades as Christian. And I just, <laughs> I took a note and I was like, yeah, but they don't even hide it now. <laughs> right, right, there, right, there you go. That's like, right. It is not even hidden. Sure, sure. Oh, man, that is out there. It is, man, it is. Uh, but it does... Uh, I just saw public school and masqueraded, and I was like, I could not note that section yep. fast enough. No doubt, no doubt. You know? no, that's true. It's but it true. wasn't going to make any sense just reading that. You had to like put it all together, you know? Yeah, no, you really do. And there's been a lot of talk about this. I, I, we can go back to, um, uh, you can go back to Dabney, uh, which is probably what I would do personally. But you don't need to. Neil Postman actually wrote a book about this as well, uh, and just talks about these in education, right? So. Education effectively creates truth statements that are that are self-affirming. So, um, and, and then uh, uh, Dabney talked about this, where uh, like Dabney talked about how. So, 
a public school administrator is effectively someone who wants to take the Bible and take Christianity and they want to strip it of all of its authority and then they want to and then they want to use it as a guideline for for kind of like societal control. So really, I mean, what you're doing is by sending your kid to a public school is you're you're, you're kind of giving up your, like your parental rights, you know, and then to be a parent is and then you're no better than the public school if you're a parent and you're not a Christian because the whole point of, you know, being a parent and having Christians is you raise your children in the Lord. Right. So if you're you're not doing that, then you're just raising your children for your own self, right? And or, or most of the time people parents that teach children without Christianity are trying to teach them Christianity with God stripped out. And then people that are sending their kids to public school are oftentimes doing the same thing except they're just too lazy to do it themselves they're going to have someone else do it and then god gets stripped out even more and then it ends up getting put out on a mass scale that yeah (laughs) that that and so postman uh postman wrote a book about this where he it was a lot it wasn't a spiritual book at all but he was really pointing out the fact that public schools make these truth statements like they're they're really self-verified I mean, so like, you'll come into school. They'll say, okay, kids, uh, the school rules are that, um, you know, that uh, your, uh, your homework should be passed in on time, you know? And, well, why is that? You know, right? So, well, I mean, you know, if you're in a public school, not God, right? So why is that? Well, is it because it's the right thing to do? Well, if God's not involved, well, then it really isn't. Like, how do you know? And so effectively, it becomes a, a, a it becomes an, uh, uh, it becomes authoritarian in nature. Well, they teach that all of these values come from human nature. Yeah, or they say uh, we've you know, devised them ourselves. Yeah, or uh, what Blumeyer's talked about earlier in the book, where the consensus view, right, where the more yeah. people that agree, then the closer to truth that you are. So yep. you know, you know, uh, and then again, but this also comes into what you and I were talking about before the recording. We were talking about the this whole concept of safetyism and how may, many people need to feel safe. You know, well, if you don't pass in your homework, then that's not fair to the teacher, and you don't want to hurt the teacher's feelings, right? And you know, that's not good. And we've come down to the Bible taking the word heretic and redefining it. We've had that discussion, mm. and and that has to do now. They they've. They've based that off of whether or not you agree with the popular interpretation, yeah, essentially. Right. What? No. The Bible, by definition, demands a black and white uh, definition of the word heretic. Mm. It does. It does. Because it's objective truth. Yeah. If you disagree with objective truth, that's what makes you a heretic. Mm. Not if you disagree with... It literally says a bapti- if you disagree with a baptized member of the Roman Catholic Church. What? Mm. <laughs> Where did Webster's pull that from? Right, sure. It was updated. I think it was updated in 2022. Last time I looked at, it. I was. Just, this is one of the things I laugh at. You know. Yeah. Another, another thing I laugh at, and this is in the book again. You know, he was talking about like, uh, you know, all the things that's happening with teenagers and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, a little further down, and he, he's. This is speaking to. Um, the influence uh, secularism is having on society, and mm. uh, you know, teenagers are an influential. Um, they're easily influenced, especially by other teenagers. They try to go with the crowd. Yeah, it's just teenagers are catching the public eye, and I was like, only them. <laughs> like, uh, right. I tell my kids all the time, like, hey, I'm an 11 year old who just woke up more times than you. <laughs> when I try to meet them at their level, though, that's what I say to, to relate to them. Yeah. You know? Right, right. Hey, laugh. I actually got complimented one time. 
one of the boys' homes I worked at. Really? Is that right? Yeah, not that it really means anything. The director, like, who, who's she? Man, yeah, whatever. Right. Anyway, but, yeah, she's like, I'm going to use that. So, uh, for what it's worth. I thought yeah, it was good. cool. I still use it today. Yeah. You know, nobody ever told me that when I was growing up. Just go to my room. Ah. <laughs> I wanted to know why I had to do something, because I said so. Okay. Yeah. That was the worst. I hate no, it is. that. I think here, Bullmeyer says uh, here in the chapter, unless you stirring urges and visions are seen to point beyond time, they will be worshipped as ends to themselves. How in the world do you and I highlight the same thing? And you speak at like the coffee shop at Harvard level. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like the mechanic at like right no if you lube yeah absolutely no it's great it was a great dynamic I really enjoy it they um, literally highlighted the same sentence it's awesome isn't it from start to finish fantastic ridiculous fantastic it's wonderful so why don't you explain it because I can't I well don't know why you I highlight know, it now you, know, you stirring <laughs> see so you stirring so effectively is you know I and I don't know what exactly what he's referring to in terms of 1961 experience in the Anglican church, but maybe it's, you know, dress up, sit down, be quiet, do what you're told, you know, and I think what he's saying here is that unless, you know, the church itself, stirrings, urges, and visions are seen to point beyond time. So all those urgings, everything should be, everything should be pointed to be beyond time. You know, everything is, you know, the nature, you know, marriage is great, you know, sex is great, you know, music can be elating, you know, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the whole con, you know, the dancing and the celebrating yeah. and courage and all these yeah. things. Like all these things can be, they all can be worshipped as an end to themselves, right? I mean, you know, they can. I mean, the whole, I mean, you know, look at, uh, for example, bodybuilding. You know, guys, they get bodybuilding, and then they put pictures out all the time, yeah. and then they brag on stories about how they get respected because yeah. of their bodies and all this and all that. You can you can worship all those things as an end to themselves. Right. And so, um, and so, but to worship them is to doom them. And he says, he says, if they, for if they have not led beyond themselves, when the time comes and they... Uh, that they are granted more rarely, and finally, not at all, their very reality will be questioned. Okay, so what he's saying is this, all right? So so let's use the example of a mountain, because we were talking about that before. I don't want to use the same romantic analogy that I've been using. So uh, the one uh, before... We'll mix we, it up. What You will mix it up with the mountain. So <laughs> yeah. remember the mountain. So if you look at a mountain from a faraway distance, and you admire the mountain, and you get it in your mind that hiking the mountain is going to be this amazing experience, and it's going to, ha and, and that reaching that goal, all right, of 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 aspiring to this lofty height is uh, is, is going to be a, a thing for you, and you can live with that for many years, and it can propel you to do many great things. And then you climb the mountain. Say that you twist your ankle. Uh, it gets very cold. You get some frostbite on your fingers. Uh, you don't see anything at the top because it's cloudy and freezing cold. And um, maybe you get chased by a bear. Right, and maybe your girlfriend decides that she didn't like it, so she breaks up with you. Right, like wow. those are all. That's rough. Well, it's a rough day at the office, but yeah. those are all possible things that could happen on a hike. So that's a pretty bad day at the office. Now, at the end of that day, you think about the young man who looked at the mountain and idolized the mountain, right, and idolized that journey and idolized what it might be like to reach the top of the mountain. So, but at the end of that bad day. The person dismisses the whole affair. Could be years. Could be years of his life. He dismisses the whole affair as some sort of subjective fantasy because he knows now that 
he knows what the reality is. So he says, well, two years ago when I was that kid looking at the mountain from 50 miles away and I had all those feelings, then they, that, that hike was no less dangerous at that day than it was today. So it, once you start to conceptualize that, then what you do is you conceptualize all of your experiences in, say, for example, two years between the first site and the actual climb. All those experiences you had in those two years also become subjectively uh, subjectively dismissed. You begin to dismiss them as illusion, as illusionary. You know, so those things that you did, and that uh, uh, so you don't, you really, you really lose that sense. And so this is where that sense, like even in midlife, right? So if someone goes from the age of eight, if someone goes from the age of twenty to forty, and they live like they're looking at the mountain, and then they get to forty and they take the hike. And then all of a sudden, everything they did between 20 and 40 becomes subjectively dismissive and disappointing. And everything they could do between 40 and 60 becomes frustratingly uh, unrealistic because that one experience showed them that all lofty experiences are unrealistic and, and unworthy because ultimately they're, they're disappointing. And so Bill Myers, I think, is talking about the church as being the church and God is a... It, all these experiences that we see are nothing more than a picture of what God beams in from outside time, right? And so, uh, for uh, so, uh, and this is again, it's what um, Schlossberg calls uh, idols of history, where you know he talks about how if all human beings could dream, and then we could have this fulfillment of dreams on a mass scale then most of life would be like this this grand mountain of fulfillment where you'd reach this fulfillment and then you'd coast until you died, right? Now, granted, maybe every once in a while people can do that and then maybe that's an experience people can have, but for the vast majority of people, they're never going to have that experience. So, um, uh, And so when you look at history as having no God, when God can't be outside of history, God can only be inside of history, then, then effectively history is that's what history is like this great dream like human beings are just trying to create this grand culminating experience called called utopia and then once you get there then you're just kind of coasting on forever you Mm -hmm. know like in this utopia because you've compared one generation to another generation and then you've made adjustments always moving towards the end right whereas when god's outside time then you know the end is outside of history so history can do whatever it wants whenever it wants but it's always the same because god's outside of it right so uh you're, you can always take that so by speaking into romanticism and by speaking into the young people's version of romanticism and we give them the gospel and we give them the, the word of god then what we're able to do is we're able to point outside of time so someone can say wow look isn't that mountain so if you look at a mountain and it's majestic and you think of it as as uh, climbing up into this great height, right? Well, you can also say that, uh, you know, the Christian walk, right? Uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, right? Yeah. And then you can say, okay, the Christian walk is also, you know, climbing, like climbing a great mountain. Except here's the thing, right, when you're with the church, right? The church can speak to a millennia of experience, okay? So that's one thing about the—a lot of times Christians will— a lot of times Christians will think to themselves, uh, they'll think, well, if I talk about God, then I'm going to feel funny, and people are going to destroy me, and there's all this logical argument that will make me look like an idiot, right? Like, okay, so here's the thing. People have been trying to do this for millennia, okay, right? Like, people have been trying to make Christians look like morons for, like, 2,000 years, okay? And no one's done it yet. The best they can do is get to that position where everybody locks their elbows and no one can move, 
You know, like that's the best anybody can do. So you don't really have to fear that, really. So the the whole concept is is you can say, okay, so we can go back. We can look at the Bible. We can look at the great heroes of the faith. We can go back. We can look at the people in your community, the people that you know, and we can talk about what it takes to reach that pinnacle of existence. Longing, always longing for God. Always keeping your eyes outside of time. Always moving forward. Right? And always having those blessed assurances of Scripture. Right. right. Right, you know? So that you can do. Now, that experience... Looking at a mountain from far off, right? So if I'm in Wyoming and I'm looking at the T- the Grand Teton and I'm, say, I'm 50 miles away and I'm looking at the Grand Teton uh, here from 50 miles away, I can look at it and I can say, one day I'm going to hike that mountain and I'm going to look out over Wyoming from the top of that mountain and it's going to be amazing. Or I have another option. I can say, okay, you know what? I'm probably never going to hike that mountain. If I did, I'd probably, you know, have to. I'd probably have to rock climb the last, the last ten percent of it, and I'd probably die. But uh, that's okay because you know that mountain makes me think of 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 God. It makes me think of Scripture, and it makes me think of my life and how I'm I'm constantly hoping and and and, and towards my mission for God, and I'm, I'm totally hoping towards to, that God will use my gifts for the good of people, and then at least in the good of my community and my church community, and I can move forward that way, and it leads them back to Scripture. Like everybody in the community should be going to Scripture. Like the pastors going to, to, to Scripture. People in the pews, everyone's going to the Scripture, and so. So everyone's moving, everyone's hoping, and and then you're building up your hope, right, as you go in Scripture, rather than uh, what he says here. And what he says here is he says that the, um, he says, unless the, the stirring urges, the stirring urges of youth and the visions of youth, are unless they are seen to point beyond time, then they will be worshipped as ends in themselves. So what Bill Myers is saying is he's saying that when you're walking down the street and you see people with, you know, that are very, you know, they're very depressed and they have a, you know, they're very sad countenance and then and, and they, 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 they're struggling, you know, that one thing that people generally struggle with, and, and this is, in 1961, this probably was a growing problem. This may be something that he was just seeing. Now, just because it's ever present in our world doesn't necessarily mean it was ever present in his world, but... I think that what he's saying here is when you see that, some of that is the church's fault because the church didn't come into this person's experience and say, hey, you need to look to the door. Maybe I could fault. I, when I say fault, I look at your face and I, I see there's some confusion. I think what Bill Myers is saying here is that the church can help people by speaking into the experiences of youth and the romanticism of youth. And the church can speak into those things. And then um, rather than have people walking around that have that are sad and disappointed and are um, these are people that are, are, yeah. are you know, they've worshipped these things as an ends. They've wanted to climb the mountain and it was cold and they broke their leg. And so they feel disappointed. Well, if they look at it as something that points to outside of time, then they're able to have something that's real that they can build up. It all comes to be whether you're building up or you're tearing down. If we look down a little further, though, it says, in no field of experience, and I, you're, you're going to love this, I know. It's okay. right. Here's your topic. Here we go. <laughs> <Does secularism, laughs> why is it about sex? Hey! Oh, that's why. Does, there it is. Does okay. secularism more insidiously drag man towards a subhuman level of living than in that of sexuality? Now, before I let you loose on this one. Oh, okay. Did you hear 
in our little town about the drag show at the Moose Club. Oh, last is that right? Weekend. Oh, is this is it past now? Is it past this prologue? Yeah. Oh, you is didn't it? you didn't know? No, no, no. I wasn't privy to that sort of thing, so I didn't uh, know about it. So, on our little Facebook page here in our town. Okay. Uh, I wasn't a member of this Facebook page. My wife was. Okay. And she leans over to me one night about a month ago. And she's like, look at this. Mm. And I had to do like a triple take. Yeah. There was a drag queen show at the Moose Lodge. I'm curious who in our town would go to something like that. <laughs> huh. I don't know if I want to name names. Oh, okay. Because uh. I, I found out, and one of them is uh, very prominent. And I was shocked. Uh-huh. Because it's it's somebody who is always at the Moose because they work there and another place in town. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, and I, it just, the the promotion of this that that person and anybody anybody promoting that like this little town the Moose Lodge what in the world? You know, I didn't even hear about it. I, I think until after it happened, probably. That's uh, the the moose. I don't know who started that. I don't know if it's like the American Legion is a, is a veterans thing. I got that. The moose is sort of like that. I don't know if the moose is a nationwide thing or if it's just wait. A, so they don't exist to celebrate moose. Man, <laughs> sorry. I, I don't. I don't know where this moose lodge thing came from. Oh, is that right? Well, no, well, maybe, it's got a number sure? on it. It's like the rejects of the Elks Club. Because like the elk, because like maybe there's only so many elk hunters, or, uh, and then there's like the elk and the moose, in the deer club. Maybe or like a deer, like an alpaca. Okay, like whatever. The alpacas. They had a drag show here in town. Yeah, right. Sure. That's ridiculous. Okay. Well, that must be a lot of courage, man. I'd be. I'd like to meet a man who would dress up and drag in this town. Right. That guy's got more. I can respect courage. That kind of courage. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I I don't get out much, but uh, nice. how much do you get out of your house? Because uh, ain't the town I grew up in. Now, yeah, no, certainly not. The town I grew up in with shotguns in the back window and stuff. That's what I mean. That you would not want to be catch or caught cross dressing. There you go. I'd so, say so. Uh, we did have a former police chief in this town that uh, used to do that. <laughs> yep. Anyways, okay. Yeah, that happened. Steve the townie. Uh, man. <laughs> you know, I live on the same street I grew up on. That's full circle. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's full full circle. That is full circle. I, I left here, managed to escape it for 12 years, came right back to the same dang road. Man. Different number. There it is. Different number, but there it is. Same road. Yeah. Yeah, all over the country. Yeah, I'm right Back here, anyway. No, all right. There you go. So, so let's let's let you loose on this topic, okay? Right, because yeah. because it says in, you know, in no field of experience, sure, does secular the secularism, you know, more insidiously mm-hmm. uh, drag man towards a subhuman level of living than in that in sexuality. So why, why, in that department, why does that drag man to a subhuman level? You know? Well, he says it here because. Uh, he says, uh, they're basically because it's perverted into a means of glamorizing passion, okay, at the expense of responsibility, duty, and charity. So, you know, uh, what he's saying is he's saying that 
is he's he's saying that you know what sexuality is tempered by responsibility, uh, by duty, and by charity. And so uh, you know we have this uh, we have this sense of we have a sense of uh, depending on the gender confusion and nihilism. Okay, so on the female side, I would uh, put this down to a sense of confusion, and then on the male side, it's a sense of nihilism. So on the female side, I just bottom line it. On the female side, we have uh, a general sense of feminism. And most women, if you ask them if they're a feminist, they'll tell you yes. And you'll ask them what that means. And what they'll do is they'll tell you that uh, it just means they want women to be treated better. You know, and, 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 and so, you know, uh, if you actually go back and you look into feminism, especially second wave feminism, then you see that feminism isn't necessarily anti-man as much as it's anti-tradition. All right, so like the the a lot of the uh, feminist matriarchs were actively trying to were actively trying to um, unravel traditions. Uh, so, for example, when they were saying that uh, when they were saying that, well, women should be in the workplace and not be in the home. Women should get women should get out of the home and should be in the workplace. That they're not saying, they're not saying that. Well, you know, we feel that women have a lot to offer the workplace, and that uh, you know, we feel that uh, you know, women are human beings, and they should have this, you know, this this kind of view, and then then this is where they're going to have the most impact on society and be happiest. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is they're saying that well, human beings in general have been stuck in a uh, in a kind of like a patriarchal prison, you know, for a long time, and tradition is the cell that this prison is, and so we need to get rid of the tradition. And so sexual um, liberation, uh, the sexual revolution, was not necessarily meant to free women as much as it was meant to destroy tradition. And so what we have uh, here is, um, so we have response, tradition, responsibility, duty, and charity. Well, that sounds pretty traditional, okay? And when you're <laughs> talking about Christianity, yeah, you're going to hear a lot about responsibility and duty and charity because those are three Christian principles. Right. So you have a lot of confusion on the female side because the fe- and this is again we were talking about being double minded how someone can have someone can have a uh, uh, in their mind they can uh, have a script that runs in their mind and then the script will tell them that well I have to be sexually promiscuous I have to you know I I have to be able to you know I have to have uh, all these boyfriends I have to do I have to do all these things and so people uh, people will form their character around this. And they think, and what they don't realize is they don't realize that they're actively trying to to go against tradition, and so that might not be something that they would want for themselves. Because a lot of feminists will say, "Well, I, w- I was a real heavy feminist throughout my twenties, but then I realized in my thirties that you know maybe I, I'm not as much of a feminist now as I was then." So this sense of confusion comes from the idea that, well, you know, when back when I was having a lot of fun and I was constantly distracted by all the 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 the, the wonderful uh, feelings of worshiping the thing. You know, that's what Pullmeyer was talking about before, right? About you know. Yeah. worshiping the possibility. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's when I was back in my 20s and then I was uh, having a lot of fun and everything was hunky-dory, then I wasn't even thinking that, that I was destroying tradition. I was just thinking it felt great and I was having a good time. That's all I was thinking about. <laughs> and now that I'm in my 30s and now that, you know, the, the chickens have come home a roost and there are consequences in my action, now I'm like, oh, yeah, I was destroying tradition. Well, I don't want to do that. I kind of want to have some tradition for me. So now I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to 
change no identity right this is all identity you can you can so, actually see that in social media yeah, too you really can you can you can see it actually happening in real time yep and so you know people will say cuz identity remember in the modern world the postmodern world Everything is identity, okay? So if I identify as a squirrel yesterday, then you have to respect me as a squirrel. But today, I can change my identity, and you still need to respect me. So in my 30s, I can say, oh, you know what? I I, I was wrong, I'm, you know? So now I'm going to change my identity. So now I want traditionalism again. But maybe not for everybody, you know, because they might have their identities. That's fine. But I want it for me, right? And so then, you know, people begin. So there's a lot of confusion. And so on the female side, you have a lot of confusion where women are basically like, well, I didn't know if I went ahead and did all this stuff in my 20s that it would ruin it for me in my 30s. I didn't know. But now that I do know, now I got to have what I want. So that creates a lot of... um. Uh, this sense of secularism, okay? So this is a secularist view, uh, an idealized view of sexual love through uh, the female lens of secularism. That's what you have. For the man, it's it's nihilism. So men effectively are like, oh, uh, you know, it's all gonna it's all gonna end. It's gonna be World War Three. Uh, you know, it's all going to go bad. Uh, we've talked about this many times. Uh, we did a whole we did a whole series on it about men checking out, uh, and so the men check out, and so that's where a lot of this nihilism comes from. You know, a lot of the nihilism comes from the the sense of well, you know, if if it's pointless, if tradition is dead, and uh, it's pointless to have a family, and it's pointless to do anything, and it's pointless to even have virtue anymore because you know if you try to have virtue it could be in the vast minority yep. then uh, then the best thing for me to do is to get mine as fast as I can as efficiently as I can and before I go you know sit in my corner and uh, and before I go sit in my corner and shut the door and um, you know so I mean really it's a uh, it, it's it's a very nihilistic life but it's a very hedonistic life okay because there's you know for the man there's there's the sense of competition. There's the sense of um, there's the sense of accomplishment. There's the sense of power, yield, yielding power over other people. Uh, and uh, there's there's many different. Um, uh, there's a, a sense of revenge. So there's all these different things that are um, kind of incorporated into that. And I'm not going to go into every single one of those now. But yeah. the um, but anyhow, it's a nihilistic vision where people basically guys are saying, hey, you know, I'm just going to tap as much as I possibly can and, you know, until I exhaust myself. And then when I exhaust myself, I'm going to go off into my little corner and I'm going to let it all burn. And, you know, and, and so it's very nihilistic. And so, you know, it, 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 these two ideologies go together like hand in glove, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about 1961 here either. So, I mean, I know Blumeyers has his own thing and he's talking about it here. Uh, he, but he does say, the damage done to youth by secularism's commercial and hedonistic exploitation of sexuality is particularly grave. All right, that was 1961. And now we're in the year 2023 where, you know, Caligula dances as Rome burns, you know. So, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of where right. we are. Right. So these two ideologies fit hand in glove, right? So, you know, you have the women who in the 20s are like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm going to take my feminist liberation and I'm going to live life of me, you know. And then the men are like, hey, I'm just going to like, you know, I'm just going to tap until I'm exhausted and until I can't, until I have nothing left to give. Uh, until the whole thing becomes, you know, until nihilism just ruins the whole thing anyway. And right. so that's kind of where they meet, right, in there. And then the women get out of their 20s, and they're like, oh, you know, he, tee, he, he, I didn't quite mean to do that. Now I want traditionalism, you know. And But the men now have gone off into their corners. And so, uh, you know, and so you look at 
two issues here. Number one is the destruction of tradition. And number two is the, uh, and number two is the uh, ever-present nihilism uh, in, uh, the ever-present nihilism in youth. Uh, or the ever-present nihilism in our society. So you have the loss of tradition, and then you have the ever-present nihilism. So if you were to ask somebody, and you said, well, we need, we got this great country, and we got this great existence that we have, and we want to destroy it, and we want to set it on fire. So, like, uh, we want to destroy tradition, and then we want to replace, uh, you know, uh, we want to replace pride with a, a long-standing sense of nihilism. How do we do that? Right. So the easiest way between point A, which is where you are, and point B, which is where you want to be, is sex. Yeah. So that's why I asked you, because, I mean, the rest of the chapter, which which is the rest of the book. Yes. Focuses on that topic. Right. And the it, whole and, thing. And as it should. I mean, we, you and I have had this conversation before. I mean, listen, all people are sexual beings. And so if you're going to be able to talk to all people. Right. We, like so. That was the one point you made where I was like. All right, I've never looked at it that way. We're like, I mean, the world agrees on nothing. Yeah. But every single one of us is a sexual being. Well, right? I mean, look. Like, that's the one thing me and Kamala Harris, you know. Right. That, that we have in common. Right, exactly. Um. So I, I can see the point there, but I guess, like, my first thought was the Bible lists so many classes of people drunkards, revelers, yada, 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 yeah. of, of people that are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Sure. I'm like, why is this pervert focused on... <laughs> like, that's all I can think of. Like, it's clearly not, you know, we're not writing a, a, a porn book here, but, like, I was like, why is he focused on this so much? Like, I understand the draw to it, clearly. Sure. Uh but man, like, well, I mean, you've ever looked. Why does like, that one stand out? I don't so, know. for example, like those that believe in the conspiracy, right? Like, oftentimes you will hear that uh, they use the term like anti-human, right? Or you might have heard that term used in different contexts, right? Like it's an anti-human campaign, right? So, mm, I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, you're, so, you're speaking to my people, though, right? You know, so <laughs> oftentimes you'll hear the term anti-human, and so. For example, uh, this is where, uh, when you think about evil ideologies, okay? So evil ideologies, uh, or what I would term anti-human ideologies, always seek to undermine or deconstruct what we all share, right? So it used to be in the church, they'd say, well, everybody has, like, atheism. Atheism is an, even, uh, is an evil ideology because it takes something that all humans share, which is a hole in your heart, you know? Everyone longs for God. And so uh, the people that long for God uh, and, and the folks that long for something beyond themselves, right, atheism attacks this. It's going to say, okay, well, because we said that's what it means to be human. To be human is to long for God. And that's not a controversial statement. That's, that's a very truthful statement. And so the atheist will come along and say, no, you know, this is not the case. Like you can live your life and you cannot have any need for God and it can never be an issue for you. And so, uh, all they're doing is making themselves their own God. Well, really. no, that's correct. That's correct. But we see this in other areas too, and it's getting worse. So, uh, for example, with the abortionist, right? So, if if someone gives you a baby, right? If someone comes to you and I say, if I say, Steve, this baby was found outside your door and it was starving to death and it's cold, right? Are you gonna take the baby out back and murder it with a kitchen knife, or are you going to are you going to make sure that baby get lives and gets nurtured? My under oath, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, obvious right. answer. 
obvious answer, okay? So we all have that in human, all right, in common, right? Mm-hmm. We all have that in common. Yeah. And so uh, where and you'll see this on Twitter sometimes too. Like you know, it's the, it's the cheap, it's the worst, it's the worst insult. Insult. Like so for me, like in the silos that I'm in on Twitter, I, I see it from one side, not from the other. But I'm sure it happens on both sides, you know. But you'll see uh, liberals will do this all the time. Liberals will say, "Well, the MAGA people all want to do this, and they all want to, uh, they all want to, uh, they want to group, run, run up all the the homosexuals, and they want to kill them all." And and have mass graves of homosexuals. That's what all the MAGA people want. Come and so, on, man. Yeah, right. So there you go. No, we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't. But to them, see the, what they are doing is it's an anti-human campaign because what they're doing is they're saying, well, you know, a human being would care, would, wouldn't want to just willingly murder another human being. So for the liberals, look at the conservatives, and they say, well, you would kill a gay person just for no reason at all, just for being gay, right? Just for just for being, just for existing. And then the conservatives look at the liberals and say, well, you would kill a baby just for existing. One human killing another human just for existing is an anti-human sentiment. And yet what we do is, is you know, these evil ideologies come into play because they make us look at other human beings as not human. And we do this with sex as well. You know, one of the reasons why we always talk about sexuality is because we're all sexual beings. But like even these days, I mean, right? People say um, that they're demisexual, right? Yeah, Which, what the heck is that one? I, I'm not even sure. I, I think I forget that one. Yeah, no, I know. There, and there's many different it's buried ones. Buried by other terms. There's many other ones, but there's, <laughs> and I think that there's one term that means that you're not interested in sex at all. And so we have these, and then we have the transgenders, and then we have the the people that identify as kitty cats and the aliens and different things. And Furries. so. Right, and, you heard of the furries? Uh, the furries, yeah. So you have the furries, yeah. and so what you do is 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 this is actually this is just again these inhuman ideologies where they do is they deconstruct areas of human life that we all share, and at least and this is my opinion. Okay, so for example, um, so the atheists have reached the atheists have reached a point where it's it's no less true. That everyone has a hole in their heart. Everyone seeks after God. That's no less true than it was before, and yet it's less of a part of our experience now. Okay, because uh, it's less of a part of our experience. And with sex, I think it's very similar. That you know, people are trying to, you know, that um, there's something that we all. It's something that we all share. Something that we could all at least relate to each other on. We don't have to disagree on. Yeah, and so especially, uh, especially as as teenagers, and it's something that you can, um, you know, it's something that you can, uh, um, it's something that you can share even across the ages, right? Because um, let's say, for example, that like the mountain, I want to climb the mountain, right? Well, maybe I meet someone who climbed the mountain thirty years ago. Well, they can share memories of what it was like to go up the mountain. Now, they're not going to go up the mountain with me. I'm going to do that by myself. But at least I can connect with that person because it's something that we share. So, you know, something that we all share. This is what marriage used to do. And this is why people say, well, marriage as an institution is dying. Why is that a problem? Right? Well, I think it's a big problem because when everybody got married and most people got married, then most people had something that they could relate to other people for. You know, and they could find out how to behave. You know, they could say, well, I'd rather be like John than be like Dave. Okay, well, both John and Dave are married. Okay, well, then I can talk to John about marriage, and it's going to teach me more about how to be more like him. You know, the institutions are what help us to develop into who we want to be. 
And that's marriage, that's the church, uh, that is uh, states of being, uh, like, uh, for example, uh, like uh, having a heart for God, a need for God, or being a sexual being, um, or not wanting to do harm to uh, another person, uh, you know, for no reason, uh, or or, uh, all these things that make us human. And so these are kind of like anti-human ideologies. So the short answer is, is why do we always talk about sex? Because sex makes us feel human, and feeling human allows us to talk to one another and allows us to be a group of human beings being human beings. Hmm. You know, if you drop me off at the Democratic National Convention, I'm probably going to leave because I look around me and I don't recognize what I see. And yet, <laughs> if I'm, and yet, and yet, if I'm in a group that is talking about, um, well, I guess we're talking about sex. So if you're in a group and then we're talking, they're talking I'm like, about... like, uh, what, what group we had to yeah, do Yeah, right, Tom? no. But then if you're in a group, say, and they're talking about fixing sexual dysfunction, then um, I don't really care if the people around me are Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians. I don't care what they are, you know? I mean, I just care. I hope that they're able to fix their problems like I'm able to fix mine. So it doesn't, you know, I, do you see what I'm saying? Right? Does that it make, make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, it just goes back to the basic premises. That's what unites all of us. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I, I get it. So how would you sum up the whole book? Cause, uh, yeah, no, it's really true. The um, How would I sum it up? So he talks about the crisis in Western civilization, and I think that that is something that he saw coming, and uh, it really is a coming crisis. And so this book is a call for people to have a Christian mind uh, in order to stave off the coming crisis. Uh, But now I think that uh, really it's needed just to survive, for survival. Uh, He says here, mass education alongside increasing material well-being and accelerating uh, pursuit of it is going to make secularism more consciously and articulately secularist. All right, so he says as it already is in Russia. So, I mean, basically, mass education, totally have it now, right? Alongside increasing material well-being, we have the greatest uh, the greatest difference between rich and poor, right? Mm-hmm. We have like kayfabe vacation where we have one one power group that exploits another power group. Yep. And uh, then we have um is going to make secularism more conscious and more articulately secular. Everything is going to be secular. And so he says the question is: Will the Christians of the next fifty years, over against a strengthened secularism, deepen and clarify their Christian commitment? in a withdrawn cultivation of personal morality and spirituality. Let me read that again. Are they going to (laughs) withdraw and focus on cultivating their own personal morality or their own spiritual morality? Okay? And what this results in is it results in a kind of uneasy coexistence between church and state. All right? Or will the Christians of the next 50 years deepen and clarify their Christian commitment at the intellectual and social levels? All right, meeting and challenging not only secularism's assault upon personal morality and the life of the soul, but also secularism's truncated and perverted view of the meaning of life and the purpose of the social order. Right? So it's not that one fears that Christians of the future will capitulate. All right, that's not the problem. The problem isn't it's not that Christians are gonna say, Well, you know, those secularists are just too strong, so I'm just going to give up being a Christian because it's because I've lost. It's like a boxing match. No, it doesn't work that way. So you you don't fear that people are going to capitulate, all right? We know our own weaknesses too well, all right, to just sit in hypothetical judgment on future contestants uh, against, you know, the people in the future are going to be weak just like people in the present are weak. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, Blumeyer says here, rather one fears that by sheer tactical error, Christians in the West may be gradually maneuvered into the position of Christians in Russia, which are content to say the best that can be said of a social system wholly and professedly committed to godless materialism, and meanwhile, sincerely keeping alive the flames of faith and piety and moral virtue among a remnant that is tolerated so long as it holds back from any comprehensive criticism of the established system. So uh, this is Harry Blumeyers talking about the year 2023, <laughs> writing in the year 1961. He says, One fears that by sheer tactical error, Christians in America may be gradually maneuvered into, and in the West, I guess, and in you know, one, one fears that by sheer tactical error, Christians in the West may be gradually maneuvered into the position of Christians in Russia. That is to say that they are content to say the best that can be said of a social system, wholly and professedly committed to godless materialism, and meanwhile, sincerely keeping alive the flames of faith and piety, or piety, right. and moral virtue among a remnant that is tolerated so long as it holds back from any comprehensive criticism of the established system. Just faking it to make it. Here you go. L- lying yeah. to get along. Or move left, right? I mean, egalitarianism. Yeah. Right? You know, I Can't mean, beat them, join them. Just a little bit. Yeah, right. Just a little it's bit. It's just a little compromise at a time, a little compromise at a time. But right. You know, yeah. That's women preachers. You know. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, man. Yeah. Think, you know, all, the, <laughs> all the sort of things, you know? Yikes. Uh, churches with the LGBTQ flag out front. I do not get that. You know, yeah. one I I asked well, you nobody one says time. It, it says it here. The subtle steps by which Christians in the West might be gently and slyly maneuvered into this position have never been plainly defined. This is a worrying matter, for the present climate of opinion makes it impossible to avoid taking these steps without opening oneself to charges of bigotry, dogmatism, uh, doctrinaire intolerance, and without incurring that most crushing of all smears, that one is holier than thou. Now, I don't know if being holier than thou is a crushing smear, but uh, from my point in 2023, but you know, Christians being called dogmatic, or yeah. Christians being called bigots, yeah. or racist, you know, or homophobes, right? Like this, this pretty, pretty common, right? That, that's normal. The other, the other one, I got an uncle who. Uh he called my other uncle uh, Holy Roller. Oh yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and and the being holier than thou thing, I, I mean, three years ago I wasn't saved. I used to, you know, if you asked me about Christians, I didn't like actively go seek them out and persecute them. Sure. You know, or talk bad about them. But if someone was to ask me, I'd be like, yeah, they're kind of stuck up, which is the idea of you know them being holier than thou, but. I don't know. I don't know if we get that bad rap because we have people who don't, um, I don't want to say they don't know how to explain the Bible because, I don't know, maybe it's like uh, a Reese's, like there's, there's, there's no wrong way to yeah. do it. I, 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 uh. don't, I don't know. Um, but I, whenever, whenever I explain the Bible, I, I really try to take myself out of it. Yeah. Um, Especially if I'm trying to like, I never try to correct somebody or make it seem like I'm correcting someone. I'm like, hey, so, you know, I struggle with that too sometimes, or I used to do, like, you have to, 
you feel like you have to like qualify your statement, you know, or you know, or put out a disclaimer first. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say where exactly that comes from because then it sounds like I'm saying like, well, I think some people are just better at it than others at presenting things. Um, hmm. I, I don't. I don't really know. But I do know that that sentiment's out there because I held that sentiment myself. I definitely thought Christians were stuck up and thought they were better than everybody. Yeah. And thought they were just pious and like, and then, you know, when I actually started attending church and I became a believer, mm. I was like, well, they really are. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's still people that are, that, that are there on Sundays. I'm like, all right, this is, some of my assumptions were true, but one of the reasons why I really enjoy the Christian mind and, and books like it, you know, is, is that there really is a, people need to think things through, you know, and there's a, um, there's a, you know, you have a, you look at, for example, like in, um, like in Asbury recently with the, the uh, with all the revivals going on there, you know, there's so many claims of emotionalism. Uh, and so people say, well, you know, the only reason that people are doing these things is, is you know, because of emotionalism. Yeah. And so it's almost like sometimes as Christians that we, we separate things out into, we separate things out into, into, you can be a traditionalist, you can be an emotional person, but one thing that you can't do is, is, is it becomes the more, the, like, the further you get out, all right, from those two frames, the harder it is to be a good Christian. And that's just phony baloney. I mean, I don't know where that comes from, you know? So, like, if you're a man, then you want, you know, if you're a traditional masculine man, you want to be Christian. But if not, then you're not. You can't possibly be a Christian. Or if you're emo- emotional. Right. And you're overly emotional, then you you can you, then you want to find Jesus. But then if you're not, then then you probably don't need him. Like all this is phony baloney. Like there, everybody has a mindset. Everybody looks at the world with their eyes and ears and the five senses, and everybody is working through the same mindset of experience. And in every experience, there's a God of the universe that's speaking into that experience from outside of time. And so you can you can relate that. You can you can you can build pillars in your life, in any circumstance that will that will point you to God, and so and I think it's it's a, a finely trained Christian mind and having a strong sense of Christian presupposition that allows you to take this view in a variety of different circumstances. You know, if your if your religiosity is based in it's an emotional experience, well then when things are emotional you know, you'll feel that God is there. You know, like, well, when, when we were in a big group and everybody was holding their hands up in the air and waving around like they just don't care, then then the God was there. But when the house was empty, then God wasn't there. Um, or uh, perhaps it's a sense of traditionalism. So maybe someone will say, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Jones down the street is a really good Christian because you go into his room and you see like 16 guns on a wall. And, uh, you know, and he built a, he built a shed by himself, you know, with his own hands and he forged the nails by himself and all these other things. And then maybe he was up all night last night lifting weights or I don't know, whatever. I mean, I'm trying to be a caricature here, but the, you know, the, the, you know, you don't have to. You can speak. God speaks into every circumstance, and then speaks into every. And that doesn't mean that He speaks into every individual. It doesn't mean God. 
God is not the God of identities, you know, so, no. right, no. <laughs> he doesn't God's get God, us. <laughs> that's right, no, God's identity. We need to get him. Right, yeah, right, exactly. God God is uh, sovereign, and so what he says goes, and we have the word of God that tells us, uh, to get, helps us to get to know him better so that we know about the God who we follow. But God is speaking to us in every situation, in every circumstance, and it's not just about, you know, it's not just about, you know, well, I think when people think of Christians, they think of, uh, they think of overarching narratives, and so you know they'll think, um, uh, you know, so if, if someone comes to your front door, and you're not super sad, or if you're not an emotional person, you're not sad, or if you're not, you don't care about tradition, and you happen to have different views, more modern views, well, then you're automatically thinking that these people are we have nothing in common. Like there's no there's no middle ground here. God's not talking in my circumstances, but indeed He is. Hmm. Wow! All right. Well, this has been quite the book, right, Steve? Any last thoughts on this book? Yeah, um, I can't use the ridiculously fancy language that's in here. Must be some. Ah, there must ah. be some 1961 vernacular, but maybe I would sum it up um, that. Each of us has our own individual walk with God. And the New Testament is very clear on that. And um, you need to, we need to do our best uh, that we possibly can. And and that's going to be determined um, between us and God and what was in our heart during our lives here. But we need to do the best that we can Uh, As far as staying close to him, staying in his word, seeking what his will is. Because remember, even when when Christ was here, you know, he became low. I mean, he didn't come here as a a king like he's coming back as. Right. You know, when he prayed to his father, you know, nevertheless, thy will be done. He learned obedience through that. And... Um, none of us are gonna are gonna be perfect until the day that we're with him. Uh, but we need to be working towards that. And as far as our our Christian mind goes, um, we need to just each day get better and better and better at asking ourselves, you know, the that old bumper sticker. What would Jesus do? Seriously, what what does right. God have to say about it? Right. It's that simple. What does God have to say about it? Yep. You come across situation. You're not always going to remember, but the more you practice it, the, the better you'll get at it. What does God have to say about it? Seek out the Bible. And like I said before in the podcast, it's not always going to be the easiest thing to to listen to. And we're going to all make mistakes. We get that. But um, fellowship with one another, that definitely helps. You know, there's a reason that advice is in the Bible. And uh, yeah, man. Like yeah. I, said, I can't put it into fancy words, but uh, I, I seek think- him first. Bill Myers himself does a pretty good job here at the end, the very end of the uh, the postscript. He says, uh, and I think it speaks to a lot, it is better to define, establish, and nourish a Christian mind in freedom now as a positive last effort to bring life and hope to our culture and our civilization. Now, that was written in 1961. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. And so he's going to talk about the consequences, which is probably more where we are now. Uh, but I will say this, and that is, if there's anything that my life can mean, and if there's anything that I can accomplish, even if it's a little bit, uh, this whole concept, okay, to nourish a Christian mind and freedom now, 
To nourish a Christian mind as a positive last effort to bring light and hope to our culture and our civilization. That's a pretty good goal. Um, Then he talks about um, the consequences. It's better to do that than to have to try to gather together the miserable fragments of Christian consciousness after triumphant secularism has finally bulldozed, bulldozed its way through the church as a body of thinking men and women. Right? Yeah. Churches still stand. Uh, there are lots of empty churches nowadays, uh, and that's a shame. Yeah. But the the real shame, the real tragedy of it all, is the church as a body of thinking men and thinking women. And so when secularism has thinking men and thinking women being double-minded Christians who profess one thing but act like they believe another— that's a problem, and uh, so uh, in that sense, I think it's a very worthy endeavor. Yep, All I, right. I would agree. Well, we're not going to stop today. That's not the end for Tom and Steve. We'll be back, and we will continue to nurture the thinking men and women of the church as best we can, and that starts with the two of us. All right, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it, and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining Tom and Steve on the Blunderground Railroad. Join us next time as we seek to travel from ignorance to knowledge. And check out their other podcasts, Notes from Blunderground and the Digital Blunderground. See you next time 